This is a major podcast and we call it UNFTR. I'm fucking the Republic is the name that is not safe for work. We hate Reagan, Milton Friedman, Rupert Murdoch, and Matt Gates. Talk socioeconomics, global markets, politics, and race. Max, the host, is basic and admits he likes Miami Vice. 99 produces, also she's a vegan and she's nice. Many Faces is the genius on the board behind the glass. Together they produce this unbelievable fucking podcast. 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 Oh, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, by the way, my name is Tom McGovern, and just know that I'm a hired gun. So if you're gonna hate somebody, please don't let me be the one. Now you have the details of the show and the entire cast. So listen to this unbelievable fucking podcast. So listen to this unbelievable, this unbelievable, so listen to this unbelievable fucking podcast. Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by overcaffeinated members Nathan Surst, Nathan E., Nettie Hugger One, Michelle H., Matthew, and the memory of Nettie McGee. Criticize. The system is broken. Our kids are failing. We're falling behind other countries. Demonize. It's the goddamn unions and all those woke liberal teachers. We need government out of the classroom. Then, privatize. There's a larger narrative here, one that we should probably tackle soon. We are officially 50 years into the neoliberal era. 52 years, in fact, since Milton Friedman was elected as the chair of the Mont Pelerin Society. 51 years since Lewis Powell wrote his now infamous memorandum. 50 years since Nixon was re-elected in a landslide, winning every state but Massachusetts. And we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the Heritage Foundation. As for education, we covered something else that happened in 1973 nearly 50 years ago, and that was the San Antonio v. Rodriguez decision. With Lewis Powell writing the opinion for the majority, the Supreme Court began pulling apart the hard work established by Thurgood Marshall and so many who came before him. It was a pure states' rights decision that paved the way for what we're calling the fourth era of education, the era of privatization. More like the error of privatization, am I right? Indeed, Manny. In the first episode of the series, we talked about K-12 education generally to learn some of the basics of the vocation and language to align us with the field. Part two is where we explored the first three eras. Expansion, where the fledgling nation placed education at the core of our national identity and each new territorial charter under the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. Then, Reconstruction which was sort of the Empire Strikes Back phase of the story when the southern states began pushing the boundaries of constitutionality in an attempt to deny equal access to education for formerly enslaved people. And the third era of desegregation, or the Return of the Jedi, I suppose, where figures such as Marshall, Charles Houston, and Walter White successfully argued case after case in front of the Supreme Court to restore balance and equity into the system. Expansion is probably best represented by Jefferson and Adams, with Jefferson writing a full constitutional amendment dedicated to education as a right, and Adams writing the Massachusetts Constitution with education at the heart of it. Now, Jefferson's bill was only struck down because the new country couldn't muster the political or financial will to tax the citizenry. But Adams' Constitution is the framework that almost every other state constitution is based upon. Reconstruction, to the extent that anything positive happened, was best represented by Lincoln and Charles Sumner. 
While the southern states would spend most of the next several decades trying to weasel out of the obligations visited upon them, the fact remains that these covenants existed in the first place due to the efforts of Lincoln and the insistence of Sumner to include education for all as a condition for readmission to the Union. The era of desegregation has to be given to Houston and Marshall, who strung together 29 wins in front of the Supreme Court to box the court into a corner when it came time to argue Brown v. the Board of Education. Their combination of patience and brilliance cleared the way for real change in this country in the form of opportunity, equity, and access to education. Of course, our racist and classist roots are always right there, just below the surface, ready to be exposed and spread their tentacles into our consciousness. These eras, defined by Jefferson and Adams, Lincoln and Sumner, and Houston and Marshall, created a system of education that was once the envy of the world. They battled against our worst instincts to preserve the right for every citizen to access free public education. Now, they didn't always win, but they ensured that we were always moving forward. As we reflect back on the half-century of neoliberal rule, the two people that most represent it are a wolf and a wolf in sheep's clothing. The one in sheep's clothing is Obama's education secretary, Arne Duncan, who must shoulder the responsibility of bringing to life the wolf's vision for the future. And the wolf? Say it loud, say it with me, yo, fuck Milton Friedman! UNF Tier is also sponsored by over-caffeinated members, Cringy, Joa, G-Wookie of Ohio, Goat, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S, Cindy S, Brie X, Brian, Awesome A, Alfie and Flash, and Asshole. Chapter 7, Phase 4, Privatization. To people of my generation or my parents' generation who are immigrants into this country or first-generation children, we got our values largely at home, at the school, and elsewhere. Schools transmit values, but we don't want a monopoly on the transmission of values. We don't want any small group of officials to have the power to say what values shall be transmitted. And yet that is what is happening now in a monopoly school system, and particularly as that school system has gotten more and more centralized. It used to be much better when you had local control of schools, because then you could have variety, diversity. But as the control of schools has moved from the local district to the city, to, from the city to the state, and from the state to the federal government, increasingly, the values that are being dictated are being determined by an increasingly unrepresentative selection of the population. To introduce the concept of privatization and get to the core of what Uncle Poo Poo Pants is talking about in this segment, let's return to an earlier series for a moment to bring another dastardly libertarian figure back into the picture. Recall that we covered Nancy McLean's groundbreaking book, Democracy in Chains, for our Libertarians Are Exhausting series. McLean detailed the rise of libertarian thinking in the nation and brought good old James Buchanan into our consciousness. Buchanan is a key figure in the neoliberal story, and his origin story itself is directly related to our story today. Buchanan was among many conservatives in the nation who were appalled by the Brown v. Board of Ed decision. So appalled was Buchanan that when he landed in Virginia in the 1950s and founded the Center for Studies in Political Economy and Social Philosophy at UVA, he did so with the express purpose of infecting higher education with the free market principles of the Mont Pelerin Society. He was one of the earliest neoliberals to understand the power and potential of the free market ideology to benefit white upper classes and believed the long path forward was in the halls of higher ed. Here's McLean. Quote, James Buchanan, 
fresh from the recent Switzerland meeting of the Mont Pelerin Society, privately called Eisenhower's dispatching of troops to Little Rock a terrible mistake. The whole mess of school segregation versus desegregation, he argued, should have been worked out gradually and in accordance with local sentiment. He never acknowledged that this is exactly what the school board of Little Rock and those in three districts in Virginia that wanted to admit some black students to white schools had tried to do, only to be overruled by the power elites of their states." End quote. Now we'll dig in more in the next chapters, but the idea of privatization in education revolves around Friedman's idea of school choice. Like all things in the neoliberal fantasy world of free market capitalism, every corner of society can be reduced to a series of transactions. Healthcare. Incarceration. Military. Education. Sanitation and public works. Energy. The free market will provide better outcomes for things that involve the public good so long as friction is eliminated to the greatest extent possible. Blah, 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 blah. And in their minds, the chief antagonist to the free market is government intervention. Like mystics, they believe that there is an otherworldly power that controls human behavior and that left alone it will produce a proper and fair outcome. Call it the invisible hand, call it natural order, no matter the euphemism, it all carries the same meaning. In the world of education, Friedman presented his concept through the lens of what he called school choice. If schools operated like businesses in a free market system, which they're fucking not nor they should be, then children are customers and schools are businesses. Businesses that should compete for the customer's attendance. The more competition there is, the greater the effort to produce superior outcomes, thereby making the market the tide that lifts all boats. We'll disassemble this logic later, but for now, understand that my obsession with Uncle Cheese Nipple is more than just a fancy. The past 50 years have belonged almost entirely to his misguided theories. How's that working out for you? Friedman believed that the mechanism to fuel school choice was a voucher system. Instead of tax dollars being extracted by local municipalities in the state to fund districts that provided services for local students, families would be provided with funds to pay for the education of their choice. Well, therefore, the city should say, very well, if you relieve us of the expense of schooling your child, we will give you a voucher, a piece of paper, worth a certain sum of money, which you may use for one purpose and one purpose only to pay the cost of schooling your child in any school you want to go to. Not only did he see this as the foundation for a competitive framework that would enhance education through competition and produce better outcomes for customers, it would put the power in the hands of the parents to decide on the type of education their children would receive. It's a really appealing idea to Americans in particular because it's wrapped in patriotic words like freedom, choice, and liberty. Taking his theory a step further, the decision as to what children would be taught would then also be in the hands of the parents who would have greater influence over schools to design curriculum, thereby stripping central governing bodies of this power. In other words, a fucking free-for-all. The whole damn system is wrong! Ah! And lastly, for good measure, we've talked before about how Friedman truly believed that this would advantage children of color in the United States more because their families would have the means to send their kids to any school they wanted if they lived within a district with failing schools, as is often the case in predominantly black and brown communities. Again, there is so much wrong with this thinking, it's hard to know where to begin, but we'll get there. In the next chapter, 
we'll cover the three main forms of school choice that have been established since Friedman first mainstreamed the concept. Each of the three main ways, vouchers, charter schools, and homeschooling, have accelerated in recent years, and the pandemic has only deepened the commitment on the right to go even further. As Derek Black writes in Schoolhouse Burning, quote, states like Nevada have passed legislation that authorizes the privatization of the entire public education system. Other states like Florida, Arizona, Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan, just to name a few, have not yet gone this far, but have been growing their voucher and charter programs at staggering rates while public education funding falls. Other states like Kansas and North Carolina have exchanged the financial stability of statewide systems of public schools for tax cuts for high-income earners and corporations. New Orleans has already lost all its public schools operating nothing but charter schools now." End quote. Rounding it out today, UNFTR is sponsored by overcaffeinated members W. Jeremy D., William N., Tony, Sultan, Specker, Ryan F., Rodrigo G., Rob Nasby, Prof G., and Pete M. Additionally, this episode of UNFTR is brought to you by Unfucking Pro, Anna, a.k.a. Ahsoke. Chapter 8. Vouchers are stupid and racist and they don't work. Mrs. DeVos ran a political action committee called All Children Matter, which spent millions in campaign contributions to promote the use of taxpayer dollars for school vouchers. The argument was that uh, these vouchers would allow low-income students to leave the public school system and attend the private or religious school of their family's choice. Mrs. DeVos has described this as school choice, claiming that it would give parents the chance to choose the best school for their children, but that's just not how it works. In reality, most school vouchers don't cover the full cost of private school tuition, nor do they cover additional expenses like transportation, school uniforms, and other supplies, which means the vouchers don't create more choices for low-income families. They simply subsidize existing choices for families who could already afford to pay for private school. And as it happens, we have a real-life test case that we can look at to determine whether Mrs. DeVos's argument holds water. Mrs. DeVos helped develop a voucher program in the state of Indiana. And guess what happened? Today, more than half of the students in the Hoosier State who received vouchers never actually attended Indiana public schools in the first place. Which means their families were already in a position to pay for private schools. Indeed, vouchers are going to families earning as much as $150,000 a year. All right, so I skipped ahead to a fascinating, if not terrifying, moment in U.S. education history. The appointment of Betsy DeVos as Education Secretary under Donald Trump. Some of you may recall the confirmation hearings where DeVos fumbled questions from committee Democrats so badly that it seemed like even the most staunch Republicans would have a hard time confirming her with a straight face. And in fact, Murkowski and Collins did indeed defect, which left it to Pence to cast the tie-breaking vote. So to place this in historical context, 
In our nation's history, there have only been nine defeated nominations and 18 nominees who withdrew from consideration for various reasons. Our whole history. Even in the most contentious political environments, it is protocol and historical that the Senate typically allows a president to select his cabinet members. Yes, his. It has become more fashionable in recent terms to deny appointments and most recently to put them through their paces. But very few nominees caused as much of a stir as Betsy DeVos. Once again, the reason for this is because we do have a history of taking education very seriously in this country. But Trump's cabinet slate was special in that so many of the people he selected had actually dedicated their careers to destroying the very departments they were tapped to serve. Like Ben Carson, who went on to gut housing and urban development. Rick Perry, who literally campaigned on getting rid of this department only to go on and run it. Mm, which department was that again? The third agency of government. Yeah. I, would, I would do away with the education, uh, the... Uh, <laughs> Commerce. I, I, commerce. And let's see. I can't. The third one, I can't. Sorry. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, it was the Department of Energy, Rick. And then there's DeVos, whose philosophy can be summed up this way. My idea of a perfect school is one in which there are no children at all. <laughs> DeVos never went to public school. Her kids didn't either. Never took out a loan for school never taught a class. DeVos was one of the very first nominees other than Trump's cast of loser appointments to have literally zero experience in the field that she was chosen to lead. In fact, she's on record calling public education supporters flat earthers. You're a long way from Earth. During her nomination, it was revealed that in total, get this, her family had donated upwards of $200 million to nonprofit organizations dedicated to destroying public education and bringing religion into schools. One of the DeVos family's primary strategies to accomplish this was to increase the use of vouchers to provide for school choice. Of all the dreadful and deceitful ways public schools have been attacked, there's no bigger Trojan horse than Uncle Stinky Doodoo's concept of vouchers. And no family, literally no family, has worked more diligently or spent more money trying to infect the system than the DeVos family. So yeah, Betsy DeVos was a clown. As clownish as the rest of Donald J. Trump's cabinet, I suppose. And she did cause real damage during her tenure, but her time was interrupted by a larger and more unfortunate event. A large-scale hoax created in a Chinese lab by Anthony Fauci to sell a vaccine from Bill Gates with a microchip that tracks your every move and thought. Oh yeah, the pandemic. Shit, I almost forgot about that. Let's cap a thought on vouchers before we go back to the Obama administration. Remember, vouchers are just one avenue of attack on public education. The way it works is that funds that would otherwise be used to support public schools are carved out to be given to families who apply. And with these funds, families can then enroll their children in a private or parochial school of their choice. But as Al Franken so eloquently noted in his remarks, vouchers typically don't cover the full cost of education and they don't cover other important costs like transportation. Then there's Uncle Nipple Tickle's insistence that vouchers would help create diversity in schools. So let's follow that to its logical conclusion. Private schools usually have attendance caps to keep class sizes small. So it's not like everyone who applies for a voucher gets one. And even if they do, 
it's unlikely that private or religious schools could manage to take in everyone who wanted to apply. Then there's the travel aspect. With only 30,000 private schools to the nearly 100,000 public schools, it's likely that a private institution will fall outside of the public busing district. So that means additional transportation costs for parents that have to drive, which isn't always an option. So to claim diversity is one of the reasons behind vouchers is a farce. Not to mention, private school acceptance rates are around 85%, which means not everyone is allowed to attend. Nor are they required to adhere to the same standards for special accommodations as public schools are required to do. So if your child has learning challenges in any form, perhaps they don't perform well on standardized tests, don't present well in an interview, or let's just call it what it is. If there's bias and racism in the interview process, then they might not make it. All of that makes sense considering vouchers were originally conceived as a way to maintain segregation in schools after the passage of Brown v. the Board of Education. Well, that's just fucking great! That's right. Several states have tried and failed to implement vouchers since the 1960s in an effort to skirt integration. But most failed to turn vouchers into law in the first couple of decades. But today... 21 states have a form of school choice systems, mostly in the form of vouchers, some as tax credits, but many states are still fighting the tide. One of the earliest states to figure out a way around its own state constitution was, ta-da, fucking Florida, which paved the way for other states to follow, thus normalizing the concept. Here's Black, quote, Florida then began experimenting with ways to get around the problem. It developed an alternative form of vouchers, what is called a scholarship program, in most respects, it operated like a voucher, paying for tuition at private schools. But rather than funding the tuition directly out of the state coffers, Florida gave tax credits to businesses and individuals who donated a state scholarship fund that the state then used to pay private tuition. The real farce, though, was that Florida reimbursed businesses and individuals for the full cost of their donations, end quote. Jesus, God, fucking Florida. So the battle over vouchers was on more even ground prior to the Great Recession. States were able to argue credibly that existing programs showed no benefit to students, and in fact, many programs demonstrated negative outcomes. As the NEA notes, quote, they take scarce funding from public schools, which serve 90% of students, and give it to private schools, institutions that are not accountable to taxpayers. This means public school students have less access to music instruments and science equipment, modern technology and textbooks, and after-school programs. Furthermore, vouchers have been shown to not support students with disabilities. They fail to protect the human and civil rights of students, and they exacerbate segregation, end quote. Okay, so pretty much everything that we've been saying so far, right? So why do it? Because religious zealots like DeVos, for example, are trying to turn K-12 schools into seminaries. Fine, fuck you. Are there real problems in underfunded districts throughout the nation that have parents searching for help? Totally reasonable. But from a public policy perspective, why the war on public education? The evidence is clear that when a district is well-funded and serves a population that has high employment, food security, and well-compensated teachers, the children perform better. Why would you take money away from a public system and divert it into a fractured private system with no accountability to taxpayers and negligible, if not negative, outcomes for children? 
the public school system, which isn't public at all. It's a government school. It's a government school system owned by the teachers union. Oh, that's right. It's not about choice. It's about breaking the unions. Point of order. I get that Betsy DeVos was an idiot, but didn't you say that this era also belonged to Arnie Duncan? Good work, 99. You're a lifesaver. Chapter 9. Arnie Dunks on Public Education. Rather than divvying it up and handing it out, we are letting states and school districts compete for it. Ah, the sweet, soothing sounds of neoliberalism and its commandant-in-chief, Barry. As much as Betsy DeVos was a dick, she was simply building on a plan that was already gathering steam. Like most Obama-era initiatives, school choice seemed like such a good idea to Democrats. The same Democrats who vilified George Bush for No Child Left Behind, for good reason, and Trump for pushing vouchers under DeVos, also for good reason. But they weren't silent under Obama, In fact, they rallied behind him and his nominee, Arnie Duncan, with great enthusiasm. In contrast to the chilly reception Betsy DeVos would receive eight years later, Arnie Duncan's hearing is a complete blowjob. I mean, seriously. I'm actually linking the transcript along with his letters of support. And it's funny because I read a lot more of it than I had planned to do because I just found it fascinating. I did throw up in my mouth a bit at times because holy shit, this was the easiest confirmation in history. Now, charter schools are only mentioned four fucking times in the hearing. Four times. But once confirmed, this would be where Duncan had the greatest impact. Like most things that are born within a particular field, charter schools started with the best of intentions. Education became a top priority for the administrations following the Second World War. K-12, higher education, medical degrees, you name it. The government viewed education in all forms as an investment into the future that looked especially bright when the United States emerged as the world's foremost superpower. Of course, the specter of the Soviet Union and their advancements in science and technology as the Cold War developed only served to heighten the need to not just compete, but to dominate. But as the decades wore on, it became clear that the primary and secondary schools were failing in certain parts of the country, most notably in the cities and rural areas. It was thought that the system had grown too large to innovate, and so a new field of education emerged and new schools of thought were being tested, but with marginal success. The idea of a charter school started all the way back in the 1970s, as a division within a public school system that would be free of state and federal curriculum mandates so new strategies could be tested and then ultimately mainstreamed into the larger systems. But this proved to be a challenge to institutional authority and school norms, so advocates pushed for a separate facility to be chartered and built as proving grounds. In theory, if these schools created and implemented successful new teaching modalities, they could use this research to bring these strategies back into the individual districts. So fine. And throughout the 80s and 90s, a handful of states passed legislation that allowed for the creation of charter schools to serve this very purpose. And there were early signs of success, though not enough to warrant full-scale overhauls. You'll recall from our Clinton series that the new Democrats under Clinton seized the mantra of charter schools, but with a twist. Instead of serving as a laboratory for innovation that could be brought into public schools, the Clinton administration saw this as an opportunity to promote its privatization agenda. 
to treat charter schools as separate and apart from the public system. In their estimation, this was a free market solution to the problem of failing schools. Charter schools are innovative public schools started by educators, parents, and communities, open to students of every background or ability. But they're freer of red tape and top-down management than most of our schools are. And in return for greater flexibility, charter schools must set and meet the highest standards and stay open only as long as they do. Also, charter schools don't divert taxpayer dollars from our public school system. Instead, they use those dollars to promote excellence and competition within the system, and in so doing, they spur all our public schools to improve. Actually, Bill, charter schools, by definition, divert funds from public schools, and they do not promote competition because the nature of competition is that there are winners and losers, or in the worst-case scenario, funding and attention is spread so thin that everyone loses a little bit. And that's exactly what happened. But like every other free market reform implemented by the Clinton administration, they were less interested in the hard data and lousy outcomes of their programs and more interested in deregulation, privatization, and promoting free market solutions, whether they worked or not. Now, when it was W's turn at the wheel, <laughs> a new twist occurred. In addition to providing an enormous amount of new funding for the construction and development of charter schools, Bush passed the No Child Left Behind Act, which introduced what education historian Diane Ravitch calls a punitive regime of standardized testing on the schools. She continues saying, quote, NCLB was passed by Congress in 2001, signed into law in 2002. It required schools to test every child in grades three through eight every year. By 2014, said the law, every child must be, quote, proficient or schools would face escalating sanctions. The ultimate sanction for failure to raise test scores was firing the staff and closing the school, end quote. Teachers were on the hot seat and unions appeared powerless in the face of a national wave of support for vouchers, charter schools, teacher metrics and accountability, and teaching to the test instead of the child. No one was looking at the data or drawing the logical conclusion as to what would happen when resources were taken from the public system to build out an adjacent system with less accountability and oversight. It was a multi-pronged attack that overwhelmed administrators who now had to fear for their funding and their jobs based on standardized tests. Do more with less or even more gets taken away from you. That was the message from the administration. On this approach, there was and is still remarkable alignment between the two major parties in this nation. The hope and change that educators were looking for under Obama would soon turn to despair and more of the same under Arne Duncan. Duncan immediately sought to eliminate caps on the number of charter schools and warned states that artificial caps would jeopardize federal funding. The timing could not have been worse. In the face of a global financial crisis, states were losing tax revenues at alarming rates. As Black notes, quote, desperate for federal funding to ease the pain of plummeting tax revenues, states that had long limited charter schools quickly changed their laws. Duncan's support helped double the charter school population during his tenure and cement a way of thinking about education that is now proving hard to control or unwind. Duncan also helped fuel a war on public school teachers, requiring states to hire, fire, and retrain teachers based on their students' standardized test scores, end quote. 
So while public schools saw their budgets slashed from declining local tax revenues and state support during the recession, charter schools had the opposite experience during the Great Recession. Their budgets went through the roof. After the recession, only 18 states made an effort to increase funding for public education to former levels. Meanwhile, transportation, wages, benefits all rose, leaving public budgets squeezed. Funding per student during the recession fell 35% in Arizona, more than 20% in Florida and Alabama, or Flalabama, 15% in Texas, Oklahoma, and Utah, and so on down the line. Under the cover of the recession, public officials then took aim at the unions, again, black. Across the nation, states made some major changes to teachers' collective bargaining agreements, salary structures, overall benefits, and teaching expectations without giving teachers anything in return. One of the first salvos was in Wisconsin, where Governor Scott Walker made it his mission to break teacher unions. Walker exempted police, firefighters, and state troopers from the collective bargaining changes, leaving teachers as the primary group to see its rights change, end quote. So that was the big tell, especially in Wisconsin. Cops, firefighters, state troopers, whatever, untouched. It was the teachers they went after. It was always the teachers they wanted to get. Easy prey. Fuck them. To pile on even more, Duncan ushered in a wave of reforms designed to chip away at teacher protections, measuring teacher performance to the test scores of children. So, okay, merit-based compensation and review, welcome to the world, right? I mean, that's how a lot of people feel, and I totally get it. Here's the problem. We weren't testing every subject. So think about that, right? A social studies teacher would be rated on how well kids performed in math and reading. Moreover, if a teacher had a good crop of kids one year who performed really well, but the next year's crop shit the bed, that teacher was left hanging. Same teacher, same curriculum, different outcome. Again, fuck them, right? That's the problem with the free market ideology. It never considers the externalities that affect real-life behavior and events. Just like you can't account for greed in the financial markets, you cannot account for externalities like food insecurity, bullying, tragedies, the impact of social media, and the countless negative and harmful influences on our children. Humans are not standard. And then there's the cold reality that charter schools, which have now been around in earnest for three decades, just do not outperform public schools. According to the first comprehensive study conducted between the Department of Education and Stanford University, quote, roughly 80% performed the same or worse than traditional public schools. The evidence on vouchers is no better. Students tend to fall behind and stay there when they transition from public school to private, end fucking quote. So the budget hawks and the free market advocates all focus on the lack of accountability among teachers because of their damn unions. But they'll completely overlook the utter lack of accountability in the charter system, which is predominantly owned by private companies. Here's Ravitch again to provide a few key examples. Businessman Ron Packard, with experience at McKinsey and Goldman Sachs, saw a chance to use federal funds to help build the highly profitable K-12 Inc. online charter chain, now called Stride, which gets dismal academic results, but paid him $19 million during a four-year period. 
J.C. Huizenga, the waste management heir, used federal CSP dollars to launch his for-profit National Heritage Academies, which helped him amass a real estate empire. Marcus May, now serving time in prison for massive fraud, got substantial funding from the feds for his New Point education partner, Charter Schools, some of which he used to buy a yacht and enjoy extravagant vacations. How about these gems? 12% of the schools that got federal dollars never even opened and 25% closed within just a few years. But the owners of the schools, they got to keep the money. This system has been so junked up by bureaucratic nonsense, ironically ushered in by the supposed free market idealists, that it's buried in bullshit. Public schools are losing funding in favor of vouchers that then go to middle and upper income families to offset payments to private schools and losing federal and state funding to charter schools that take kids and teachers away from them. The public school teachers are held to proficiency standards that ignore real-life influences and don't even test half of the subjects that are taught in schools, even though their compensation depends upon it. And when a charter school fails, private companies pocket the federal funds and just fucking move on. The cherry on top of the icing of this shit cake is homeschooling, which also flourished during the pandemic. Online companies have popped up all over the country with the promise that they can provide accredited online schooling and states are lumping these programs in with charters and vouchers as actual valid forms of education. Spoiler alert, they're not. Not even fucking close. A New York Times article titled Online Schools Score Better on Wall Street Than Classrooms offers a glimpse into the world of online schooling that the carnival barker companies that offer programs behind doors, number one, two, or three. Dig this. Quote, During a presentation at the Virginia legislature this year, a representative of Connections, that's a charter school company, explained that its services were available at three price points per student. End quote. Option A, $7,500, a student-teacher ratio of 35-40 to 1, and an average teacher's salary of $45,000. Option B, $6,500, a student-teacher ratio of 50 to 1, with less experienced teachers paid $40,000. Option C, $4,800, and a student-teacher ratio of 60 to 1, as well as a more narrow curriculum. The article continues with the insults. Quote, despite lower operating costs, the online companies collect nearly as much taxpayer money in some states as brick-and-mortar charter schools. In Pennsylvania, about 30,000 students are enrolled in online schools at an average cost of about 10000 per student. The state auditor general, Jack Wagner, said that is double or more than what it costs these companies to educate those children online, end quote. So yeah, Arnie Duncan oversaw the explosion of charter schools, championed vouchers, and refused to support devastated public school districts if they didn't go along with his free market plan to fundamentally alter the landscape of public education. All while his Democratic colleagues in the House and Senate peppered him with questions about his jump shot and if he ever goes one-on-one -on -one with the president. This asshat made Betsy DeVos's job destroying public schools so fucking easy and it set the table for the backlash against teachers during the pandemic, earning him this spot and a Tom McGovern special. You're simply the worst. A pariah and a curse. Lower than anyone. Detestable and Oh, 
And in case you're wondering where Duncan wound up, he's currently employed by the University of Chicago. Well, isn't that special? <laughs> Chapter 10, The Propaganda Machine in Full Swing. Ideas and concepts are everywhere. Some take root organically. Some are thrust into the public consciousness by happenstance. And some are sold to us. Ideas that are proposed, that circulate, that spark wonder and research. Ideas that are altered by each new input. Like a game of telephone, sometimes these ideas wind up sounding very different by the time they reach the end of the circle. Like how charter schools started as an idea to form independent divisions within public schools to test new modalities that could be mainstreamed into a curriculum. A bad game of telephone, if ever there was one. Then these ideas are tested and vetted, and pieces of them will turn into policy. As they're adopted, they'll become normalized, and over time, we can't remember why or how they started. We simply say, I don't know, that's just the way we do it. Now, early on, we talked about the rise of the think tank in America and how ideas from figures like James Buchanan and Milton Friedman made their way into research papers published by these organizations. How they would circulate through the media to be normalized, oftentimes through interviews with the writers of these very papers that weren't subjected to peer review or trials. Their word alone became gospel that was sold on television and radio and eventually podcasts and videos. Political action groups would then craft model legislation based on this research, and pollsters would push-poll the ideas during elections, ideas that sounded vaguely familiar because voters had heard about them on television and radio and podcasts and videos. Privately funded foundations would pump millions of dollars into candidates and elected officials to promote the legislation for these new, groundbreaking ideas while siphoning budget money from the old ideas to ensure their failure stood in stark contrast to the possibility and potential of the new, yet unproven ones. Foundations like the Bradley Foundation in Wisconsin. We further outstanding research, teaching and scholarship, and advance alternatives to K-12 public education monopolies. Bradley promotes the teaching of American exceptionalism, encourages vocational training and other alternatives to university-based education, and supports education for gifted students. In an August 2021 New Yorker magazine article, Jane Mayer wrote that the Bradley Foundation, quote, has become an extraordinary force in persuading mainstream Republicans to support radical challenges to election rules, a tactic once relegated to the far right and funds a network of groups that have been stoking fear about election fraud in some cases for years, end quote. So listen, if Jane Mayer is writing about them, we ought to pay attention. The Bradley Foundation moves opinions and puts money in very influential places, obviously, right? The election fraud stuff was everywhere. And so if these election fraud conspiracies are any barometer, it appears they're pretty good at it. But destroying public education, that's their top priority. They refer to public K-12 schools as monopolies, just like Uncle Fucknugget. They talk about actually teaching American exceptionalism in schools. I don't know what that curriculum looks like, but the, okay. They promote vocational training. Now, a lot of people are fans of this. It's another popular aspect of their ideology that smells of freedom, but what it really stinks of is economic suppression by another name. And of course, providing opportunities for so-called gifted students. 
So fuck the learning impaired, persons with disabilities or the marginalized, food insecure, or perhaps homeless children. Let's somehow identify, quote, gifted students by some vague, subjective, and unwritten metric and give them money to succeed in schooling and life. My guess is they're probably all pretty white. Two C's, two D's, and an F. That's a 1.2 grade average. Congratulations, Kroger. You're at the top of the Delta Pledge class. Here's what the vaunted Cato Institute thinks about a post-COVID education landscape brimming with opportunities for children. Quote, Potentially far more valuable than giving districts autonomy is fundamentally changing the education structure by having the money follow children and giving educators autonomy to run schools and teach as they think best. This would create a system that is more flexible and innovative, with smaller schools able to move quickly to respond to threats and empower educators to try new things. That empowerment is key to getting more of the sorts of platforms such as Google Classroom or Duolingo that have enabled online education to become increasingly enriching. It's also crucial to enabling parents to find providers that will efficiently furnish education commensurate with families' tolerance for risk. End quote. I mean, what the actual fuck here? Listen to this language. Empowerment. Innovative. Tolerance for risk. Responding to threats. I mean, kids aren't a venture capital-based tech startup. And Duolingo? Seriously? I mean, we've used Duolingo and other apps for fun to brush up on subjects in our house. But if you think a fucking app is going to teach your child a new language, you are seriously mistaken. Cato doesn't end there. Far from it. They also believe that states should, quote, open the doors wide to virtual charter schools, end quote. Hey, the real-life charter schools are no better than public schools, so why not make them even less productive by putting them online? The same idiots who railed against school closures saying kids need to be in class are now advocating for kids to stay home and sign up for option A, B, or C and do a fucking lingo. And they want to accomplish this, by the way, through education savings accounts, or ESAs, private accounts that are funded by nonprofits and the state for parents to use at their discretion. Like how George W. Bush and Paul Ryan wanted to privatize Social Security through private savings accounts that retirees could invest in the stock market, giving it control to Wall Street. Or how every Republican dickhead today wants to create medical savings accounts to do away with Medicare and Medicaid. It's always the same horrible fucking idea designed to take money from government programs and give them to unaccountable private enterprises and Wall Street. Now, the granddaddy think tank of them all, the Heritage Foundation, says, quote, in the modern era, America has never been closer than it is today, realizing Milton Friedman's vision for universal education choice through education savings accounts, end quote. They even have an education freedom report card that ranks I can't even say it with a straight goddamn face. Florida has the best state in the country for education freedom, with Arizona coming in a close second. Forget that K-12 through standardized test results, for better or for worse, rank them as 16th and 47th, respectively. A recent salon piece dug into the report and offered this take. Quote, In the Heritage Foundation's inaugural Education Freedom Report card, the think tank is grading according to different metrics entirely. Not things like average student funding, teacher salary, or classroom size, but how easily state legislatures enable students to leave public schools, 
how lightly private schools and homeschooling are regulated, how active and welcome conservative parent advocacy groups are, and how frequently or loudly those groups claim that schools are indoctrinating students, end quote. Other metrics include things like if ESA accounts are readily available. Are there anti-critical race theory laws on the books? How many groups like the Koch-backed Parents Defending Education there are? Or if discussions on gender and sexuality are prohibited in the classroom? It's helpful to peruse the universe of libertarian think tanks to uncover their long-term plans. Now here's one that calls back to the second episode in the series, calling compulsory education unconstitutional. Surprise, surprise. Here's an excerpt from an unremarkable think tank called the Future of Freedom Foundation, only notable to an extent because its founder, Jacob Hornberger, ran to be the libertarian presidential candidate in 2020. Fun fact, and this is mostly for 99's sake, he lost to Joe Jorgensen and barely, and I mean barely, mustered enough support to edge out this third candidate in the primary. No, don't you tease me. Yup. This is happening. Hi, my name is Roman Supreme, and uh, I'm generally known for as a person who's running for president. That's right. Vermin Supreme managed to get 206 votes at the convention to Hornberger's 285 on the promise that every American would get a, well, here. Um, I'm uh, asking you right now, are, do you still stand by your pledge made in 2008 to provide a pony for every American. Yes, I do, sir. Anyway, here's an excerpt from an article on the Foundation website called Compulsory Education, the Bane of Learning and Freedom. Quote, compulsory education violates the liberty of all citizens, taxpayers and students alike, not only by forcing parents to subject their children to a state education, but also with the coercive funding, i.e. taxation, used to force children's attendance, end quote. Unfuckers, remember, this is where all this shit starts, on the think tank level. They might sound a bit wacky at first, but hey, they're from a think tank, so you never know. They might start by attacking truancy laws. It's a fair place to start. That's the ability to literally lock up parents and send children to juvenile detention for not attending school. They might attack state criteria for homeschooling and what passes for graduation standards. They might attack the legitimacy of district-level funding mechanisms. None of these is an original thought. They are all ideas that exist in the corners of the libertarian and dark money sphere, and they're working their way into the mainstream through the language of choice and freedom. Every attack on critical race theory at a school board meeting, every mandate to loosen the cap on the number of charter schools, every mask mandate protest, every attack on collective bargaining, every dollar allocated to private and homeschooling vouchers, each one of these is subterfuge for the larger dual agenda of the right-wing hellscape of think tanks and money to dumb down the electorate and to stop funding education with tax dollars. So that's the one-two punch from the foundation and the think tank. But as we covered, a successful propaganda campaign means you still have to sell it to the public. And right on cue, Here's PragerU to tell us how schools should operate just like a business. What if schools had to compete for students in the same way that businesses have to compete for customers? Would schools get better or worse? There's no need to guess. In almost every state and city where there is competition today, 
educational outcomes improve often dramatically. This competition is called school choice, and many states and cities now embrace it. With the old model under which most American children still live, the government, not the parent, decides which school children will attend. Now here's how school choice works. The money follows the student. Every child receives funding that their parents can direct to the school of their choice, public, private, charter, or even homeschool. Again, I know it's gauche to quote oneself, but fuck you, Prager you. Chapter 11. Bring it home, Max. The choice isn't whether or not individuals can and should choose what type of schooling they want. Children aren't customers. Education isn't a marketplace. It's foundational, and hopefully we've demonstrated that it is indeed fundamental. We can quibble over curriculum, standards, teaching to tests, open classrooms, constructivism versus behaviorism, mindfulness, experiential learning, and other aspects of education. But the real choice is whether or not we're going to take our investment into children and education seriously and treat it as a fundamental right. Will we continue to make the choice to fund our schools and provide for our children? If every district was properly and equally funded, teachers were honored and compensated fairly, and resources were made available for all children and not just ones deemed to be gifted by some subjective standard, then outcomes would improve for everyone and not just a precious few who have the ability to navigate a system. Why not make all schools excellent? The idea that competition breeds efficiency and improves all stakeholders is folly. Now think about this for a second because this is important. We said it before, but I want to say it one more time. Competition breeds winners and losers. That is the nature of competition. Here's Derek Black again from Schoolhouse Burning. Rather than fundamentally change our democracy, they try to borrow democratic language and bend it toward their own needs. For instance, they frame charters, vouchers, and school choice issues as educational civil rights. They tap into natural sympathies towards seemingly powerless parents and claim the goal is to allow disadvantaged families to exercise the same choices as wealthy families. They tap into our constitutional commitments to parental autonomy and religious freedom by framing charters and vouchers as issues of personal liberty and religion. They even evoke the nation's constitutional commitment to a right to education as they blur the lines between private and public education, end quote. Now, we've covered a lot of ground on this series, and nothing I've said is intended to imply that we do not have real-world problems within the existing public school system the problems that existed and were exacerbated by the pandemic. As a recent New York Times article in the Pandemic Learning Loss notes, quote, the national test results capture both the initial academic declines and recovery, and they offer some nuance. While there was a notable correlation between remote learning and declines in fourth grade math, for example, there was little to no correlation in reading. Why the discrepancy? One explanation is that reading skills tend to be more influenced by parents and what happens at home, whereas math is more directly affected by what is taught in school. So remote learning does not explain the whole story. What else does? In a sophisticated analysis of thousands of public school districts in 29 states, researchers at Harvard and Stanford universities found that poverty played an even bigger role in academic declines during the pandemic. End quote. 
Listen, there are bad teachers. In fact, there are many more now as a percentage of the teaching population because we've driven so many quality teachers from the profession. There have always been bad teachers. That's true of any profession, mind you. We can all remember the ones that made us feel bad or stupid. Fuck, I remember a teacher slapping the shit out of a friend of mine while smoking a butt in the teacher's lounge. We were in the third grade, by the way. But hopefully, many of us remember the great ones who helped shape and guide us, like my high school social studies teacher who ignited my passion for history and debate. Teaching is part science, part art, and entirely social and human. We cannot expect teachers to endure attacks from parents, school boards, administrators, media pundits, and the wealthy libertarian class determined to tear down public education in service of their mission to dumb down the electorate. But as the Harvard and Stanford study and myriad others have demonstrated over the years, there's a direct correlation between economic conditions and education outcomes. It's hard to learn when you're hungry. It's hard to learn when you're sleep deprived. It's hard to learn when you live with the stresses of poverty that manifest in so many ways. And it's hard to teach when you don't have science labs, instruments, gym equipment, and textbooks. When a school's funding is dependent upon the tax base of its district and the state continues to cut funding, when students show up to class tired, stressed, and hungry, maybe even sick, when teachers are attacked by parents who have direct lines of communication to them day and night, when their compensation is tied to artificial test results that are benchmarked against districts with far fewer issues, when collective bargaining is gutted, contracts and raises are stalled, and professional development is eliminated, the outcomes are inevitable. And so is our response to them. Throughout the expansion phase, the founders of this nation held close the sanctity of public education. Of course, this only extended to the privileged class of whites. The reconstruction phase sought to right this wrong and bring everyone into the fold. And heroes such as Charles Sumner emerged to remind us of what we fought one another for. Of course, he didn't get everything he wanted. And while education was universal, it was separate and wholly unequal. Champions such as Houston, White, and Marshall fought tirelessly to break down the barriers between us and succeeded well beyond what half of this country was even ready for. Now, in the era of privatization, where Milton Friedman's ideas of vouchers gets even more perverted by libertarian advocates and big-money donors in the worst game of telephone, we think private industry is coming to the rescue. For-profit institutions with no accountability pocketing federal dollars and closing up shop? I mean, you think billionaires have the answers to public education? Ask Bill Gates how that went. Vouchers for private and parochial schools are just cover for segregationist policies that mask our racist roots. Remember how the attack started on fuckers, with James Buchanan's outrage over Brown v. the Board of Ed. That's the anger that fuels the movement behind school choice. Arne Duncan, maybe the most qualified candidate on paper to ever lead the Department of Education, was no better than Betsy DeVos in practice. And for that matter, since the Clinton era, Democrats have served as useful idiots to the school choice crowd. Shit, Republicans know the free market doesn't work to benefit the public and lift people out of poverty. They know competition doesn't breed success across the board. It creates winners and losers. Only Democrats seem to still believe in the promise of the free market to cure societal ills. It was Clinton who took the white papers and ran with them, turning them into policy. This opened the door for Bush to double down with standardized testing and punitive measures against teachers, unions, and children. But it was Obama 
who attacked the public education system from all sides and paved the way for the likes of Trump and DeVos to gut as much faith in educators and the system as possible, especially when the pandemic hit. All of the information that we need can be found in the think tanks. They're putting it out there for everyone to see. And even though it's taken decades, they're winning the battle for hearts and minds. And we're moving further from what those in the profession, the educators and administrators on the front lines who deal with systemic issues day in and day out, further from what they're begging us to do. And that is to protect our children. So we know where to look for what's next. It's why I spent so much time on constitutionality. As sure as you're listening to this series is as sure as they're going to attack the fundamental nature of compulsory education. It's the last logical step for them. The absolute way to dismantle the underpinnings of a system the founding fathers themselves wanted for this nation. For all their faults, they recognized that the United States of America could only succeed and prove that a democratic system could endure if it had an educated citizenry. They had the answers. What they didn't have was the money. But we do now. The only problem is we have all the money we need, but we're looking to the wrong people for how to spend it. If we allow ourselves to dream a little bit and think big, we would make a wholesale change to the funding of the education system and strive for a more balanced and equitable equation. That's how we would ensure no child is actually left behind. If you were to draw up a plan today, there would be no district-level property taxes to fund schools. There would be a universal tax in this country to fund education evenly across the board. Let's say, for example, we funded every student at the same rate as Massachusetts does, the state with the best and most consistent public education outcomes in the nation, and awarded that to districts evenly. That's one of the highest per student spending, by the way. The annual budget impact would be about $862 billion, which would include all K through 12 and charter school kids. It was always a mistake to fund schools through the local tax base infrastructure because it baked inequality into the system, but they had to do it from our founding because they had no money. It guaranteed disparities in salaries and infrastructure and resources for students though. And by the way, Nothing would prevent states from filling in gaps where they felt that it was warranted. States could maintain their own constitution so long as they're in alignment with the federal constitution and levy taxes to bolster funding or add early childhood education. And yes, even innovation centers within districts as charters as they were originally conceived. Local districts would be able to hold fundraisers, solicit donations from organizations and parents to augment programs. Local districts would still remain budget authority over the use of funds for hiring, maintenance, and programs. Now, would this work? Could this work? I don't know. Let's ask these countries that outrank us. We're ranked number 16 among OECD countries in performance, by the way, and are predominantly, or to a great extent, these countries, funded by central authorities. New Zealand, ranked number four. The United Kingdom, number six. Ireland, hi Bobby McDee, number seven. Austria. Eight. France, 11th. And the Czech Republic, number 15. Also above us are countries that have a mixed formula, like Canada, Australia, Belgium, and Switzerland, meaning that they use a combination of federal tax and regional dollars with supplemental funds from local districts, sort of like the United States, but upside down in terms of the level of funding. Then there are nations that outrank us, but draw funding from education entirely from local sources. Finland, 
Sweden, and Norway. What's the big difference here? Hmm, why are they so much better at it than us when they have the same system? Because they don't have such tremendous income inequality, so they're starting from a more egalitarian baseline everywhere in the country. This type of thinking might be too big. When the United States moves in a progressive direction, it's always incremental. Which is why, once again, I can't believe I'm fucking saying this, the Biden administration has signaled a positive shift in mindset that pretends good things. Like many other initiatives, it's not enough. But this administration is moving in a positive direction. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona has been highlighted for his role in pausing and trying to forgive college debt. We've covered this in some detail. But what doesn't make the headlines is what he's done at the K-12 level to restore some sanity. Cardona has pushed the administration to allocate billions of dollars to mental health support in students with disabilities. Moreover, as reported in Edweek, quote, the Biden administration announced proposed regulations that would require charter schools seeking federal funding to demonstrate widespread community interest in the program with the help of a survey and data showing over-enrollment in local public schools. The proposal would also require private charter providers to partner with at least one local public school district on developing curriculum, professional development opportunities, behavioral interventions, or practices to help struggling students. For-profit operators would be barred from the federal grant program, which totals $440 million in Biden's proposed education budget, end quote. So the next two years will be a repeat of prior intractable and ugly stalemates in Congress will be reliant on the powers vested in the Department of Education to manage policies and funding related to privatization efforts. And we can only hope that the department is filled with well-meaning wonks who have studied the data and recognized the dangers lurking around the corner in every think tank boardroom and in state legislatures that have been historically opposed to federal authority in education. For now, we can do our part. And that starts with lifting up our educators and listening to the experts by dialing back the vicious attacks on teachers, supporting collective bargaining, sounding the alarm in conversations and online when you hear euphemisms like choice, freedom, and vouchers. Share positive experiences and interactions with school teachers. Attend a local school board meeting and drown out the racists and the homophobes. Education is a fundamental right. School choice is rooted in racism. Hug a teacher. Here endeth the lesson. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Hey, welcome to post-show musings. What up, 99? It's early and I'm tired. It's noon. <laughs> That's early. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's noon. That's 10 o'clock for my brain, which is also late for most people. <laughs> yeah, it is. It yeah. Is. That's okay. That's all right. Uh, I feel you on that one. I definitely feel you on that one. I was complaining about the weather dropping finally down into the 30s here in New York after we, uh, thanks to global warming, had it so good for so long. Here come the dark months. And I'm not sleeping any better. Like, usually I sleep better in the winters when it gets a little bit dark, but it's just not happening right now. Mm. I don't know why. 
I don't know, but my psychiatrist told me I have to get a happy lamp or whatever. Like, oh, get some. Yeah. For vitamin D, is that it's, like a thing that lamps that certain lamps can actually provide? I don't, is that the thing? I think it's psychological. I think it's you sit in front of it for 15 minutes, and I think it mimics the sun and it tricks your brain. Okay. Which I do cold showers instead. I love cold showers. Yeah. Hot showers are too much. I get you sweaty. And I'm like, I don't want to sweat. I'm in the shower. Yeah. Stupid. Yeah. Nothing mm -hmm. like a cold shower in the dead of winter to just make everything feel like you're alive. It's also better for your hair. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Especially when you're conditioning because it closes the follicles and it makes it like, like, I can't, ex I'm not a, I'm not a hair doctor. This is very important to 99 um, because she has all the hair. I mean, she has the most hair. <laughs> per follicle in the world, right? Aren't you? Didn't you set a Guinness Book of World Record? I have been told by every hairstylist I've ever seen, and they're always like, sort <laughs> Jesus. of, they're sort of mad at me. They're like, you have so much hair. <laughs> and then, then other people, in the, they'll be like, wow, and they'll be like, I know, right? They have to deal with it. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I just want to trim. Uh, I want to do a little book love just to kind of keep this up top. I'm, I'm so happy that I found Derek Black's book, Schoolhouse Burning. We pulled from it a lot, obviously. And it didn't really get into policies and things like that as much as it just gave a really good contextualized history of how we think about education. And frankly, I'd never thought about it in those terms before. So I love stuff like that when you know an author can really open up your mind. The book to not buy, in fact, I have a note here that says, do not buy this fucking book is Race to the Bottom by Luke Rosiak, but I have to mention it because we did source it in the materials. It was interesting because he's a Daily Wire reporter. He's from one of the most racist districts in Virginia, uh, really leading the charge against, I mean, you name it, they were just up in arms about fucking everything. But they were doing it uh, a little performatively to try and draw attention to it because he's a fucking Daily Wire reporter. Anyway, uh, so don't buy that book. Frames of Mind. The Theory of Multiple Intelligences is something that uh, we sourced. That's the Howard Gardner book from many, many moons ago. State of the Union made it into, actually, I, I think it wound up in the cutting room floor for the most part, except when we were talking about some of the union protections. There was some interesting history. The unions, it, historically, because everybody thinks, oh, the teachers' unions are so egregious and they're stealing all the money from the state pensions and the budgets. And I can tell you that in New York, the teacher protections in the unions are, are very, very good compared to the rest of the country. And it's a significant part of the state budget, but no more so than any of the other uh, public service providers that we have in the state. But in other states, they're really it's really not the problem. And a lot of the teachers are not unionized in, in many states and many districts, but they're, they're always, always put in the front lines as the example of, you know, people that shouldn't be getting those kind of protections. And the theory goes, we used to not have a problem with teachers because they were paid so little that at least they got good benefits and a good pension. But now they make so much that fuck them, they shouldn't have a good pension or a good retirement. And all I say to that is just like spend a minute and a half in a classroom with your own fucking kids and their friends. And like, you know, you tell me that they that they're overpaid and their their average of pay is just nowhere close to other professional services that you have to, for the most part, get an advanced degree for and go into debt to get that. So it's not like their compensation nationally on average is out of whack in any way, but they've historically had the least amount of protection among all of the service and trade unions. And that's one of the things that State of the Union does a pretty good job of explaining. 
uh, schoolhouse burning. We covered democracy and chains. We added back into the into the mix for this third part to remind us of the origins of the the racist origins under James Buchanan when he was writing in the 50s and 60s. And I think that was it for the books. Our libertarian episode was like one of the most popular ones this year. I saw that on our little Spotify thing. Do you want to give people a little rundown of some of the highlights from our Spotify thing? Sure. I don't. And, and I assume that's just they're only ranking their own data, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, we just like they have an unwrapped for the consumer for podcasters. We also get one. And people were listening. We were in 1% of all podcasts shared globally, which is wild because half of the podcasts in the world are on Anchor, which is Spotify. So, And then we were in like the top 5% of all podcasts, which is still really great for, you know, this small platform. Unbelievable. And what else? And we have so far to go. Yeah, we had like 170,000 listens or something wild. Big numbers. 5,500 minutes. Yeah. It's a lot of us talking. A lot of blah, blah, blah. Yeah, a lot of people. (laughs) There were like hundreds of people who we were their number one podcast. Thousands we were in their top five and even more in their top ten. So cool. Yeah. And the Libertarian episode was one of the most shared and most listened Mm -hmm. to. So people must have sent it to all their fucking Libertarian asshole (laughs) friends. Like, "Mm, look, see? What's interesting, though, and I think this does go back to the sourcing and the fact that there's critical analysis to this stuff is that I was expecting a lot of pushback when we did the Libertarians are Exhausting series because we really, really criticized the discipline. So either people did share it with their Libertarian friends, they listened to it and they're like, yeah, well, okay, no, I, I don't, I don't want to listen to this anymore. Yeah. Or they got it, they started listening to it and just stopped, you know? And yeah. Because it was just too much, too much thinking. <laughs> or they listened to it. You didn't give that as an option. I, I just, I have a feeling that if they were really hardcore libertarians, like the big bro Elon Musk fans out there, mm-hmm. those type of libertarians, if they got it, I just can't see them sitting through a two-part, two fucking hours of like history and sourced material on why libertarians are exhausting. Because if they did and they were still against the content... I feel like more of them would have been reaching out to us and and giving us negative reviews and and bitching at us. You know what I mean? That's true. Or maybe you're just that great and you got through to them. That's got to be it. Yeah. That's got to be it. There are a ton of resources, by the way. In a three-part series, there's going to be a lot. And I'm not sure if I have them all linked here, but they'll all make it into, uh, into show notes or throughout the piece that you'll find on Substack. This was really actually kind of cool and critical because there is... So much data available. Now, a lot of this stuff we don't have to guess at when we're benchmarking or looking at outcomes. So that's fine. The hard part about putting this together, especially as a non-educator, is trying to look inside the field itself and look at the more, at the more artistic nuance of it, not the science part and the outcomes and the things that we can all see and benchmark. It's so great to have the data. But this is, I think... I think the reason that we went so deep into this topic and this turned into what it was, in fact, walking into the studio today, I said the 99, this should really be four parts because this episode was too long. But I just feel like just fucking get it done and get through it. And we had kind of a flow to this and I just wanted to, to, to finish it up. We will also probably around the new year be putting all three together, packaging it up as we do with our series and putting it out there if anybody wants to share like the piece on it without all of the interruptions. But 
the artistic part of this thing, the, the nuanced part, the personal one, the one where externalities affect it. One example that I didn't bring up in the in the narrative, but I wanted to bring up now is like when you're comparing these districts, I mean, a district in New York is so much different in. The, and I mean, downstate New York with the population that we have is so much different than a district in let's say, rural Arkansas or the rural part of South Dakota. I mean, kids are coming from all over the place. Like opening up a charter school just because you're mad at the public schools is like not necessarily a fucking option. And one of the sensible things about what Biden's talking about here or what Cardone's talking about is like, hey, if you want to open a charter school, you have to show me the need. Show me that you're public school is over-enrolled, that it's bursting at the seams, that it's failing, that there's problems that would be addressed by having another school there. And then I'll consider it. Because what's happening is they're opening it in areas where they're not over-enrolled and they're just stealing the resources from it. And the logical conclusion there is that nobody wins. Of course, the charter school is not going to outperform the other schools because there's just not enough of the kids or teachers or textbooks and all the other things to go along with it. And the let's say the effects that, that kids have, how long they have to travel to school, how much they get to eat, how much time they have for homework. Do these kids work when they get home? Do they have other jobs that they fill in? Like every family and every scenario, every circumstance around the country is a little bit different. There are kids that can walk to school because they live so close to the school in, in areas that are so tight. That, that takes away a lot of the transportation issues, takes away a lot of the after-school programs, the early childhood programs. It takes a lot of issues off the table. But if you live far from your school and now you want to go to a charter school that's even further and you don't necessarily have busing or you're going to get a voucher for a private school, you got to fill in the blanks. Do you know how hard that is for parents to fucking figure out if you have maybe, I don't know, more than one fucking kid and they everybody in the family has to work to put food on the table? Like, we just don't factor these things in, but they've been so goddamn successful at focusing our attention on critical race theory, which isn't even taught in schools. I mean, it's just not, it's a complete fucking fabrication or kitty litter boxes in the bathrooms, which doesn't actually exist. The fact that more Americans know about critical race theory and kitty litter then any of the things that we just talked about for two and a half fucking hours is so soul-crushing to me and just demonstrates how successful they've been with their think tank model and you know getting this stuff and working it and normalizing it through the rather radical fucking media that we have. Yeah. Did we talk about, we didn't mention magnet schools, right? No, we didn't. Are they the same as charter schools? I'm not competent enough yet to, to, to say that. Wow. So you basically didn't do your research. I didn't. I had a lot more homework to do. You guys hear this? Yep. A lot of work to do. Mm. <laughs> so is this where I get to talk about all my shitty teachers? Sure. I'm waiting. Okay. I've been waiting. Okay. Okay. Can I list them all? I mean, I'm not going to give their names. Okay. My ninth grade math teacher, as I said. Yep. One of the worst teachers I've ever had. Yep. Mine was seventh. My math. Math. My, my seventh grade math teacher was hot. So. Oh, really? Was, yeah. My sixth grade math teacher was awesome, but I didn't learn any math because he was a German who fought for the Americans during World War II. And all you had to do was ask him a question about the war, which we did every single class. And he would just go on a 40-minute tangent until class was over. It was incredible. Hmm. We had a weird teacher who 
always said that he had one eye and he would like pretend to take it out. And like <laughs> one time he chased this girl around our classroom. He wasn't even teaching that class. He came in and did it. It was yeah. very strange. Oh, my seventh grade home ec teacher, because we still had that. It was co-ed, obviously. This girl in my class stole my bag and she wouldn't hold everybody and call the assistant principal. And I was like sobbing and I was like, please just call her. Like, let's, someone's got to be questioned here. I had my bag when I entered and it's gone. And I had like already looked everywhere. So I'll never forgive her. Best home ec scene in movies? Super bad. Mm, yes. Good shit, Maroki. And then my ultimate least favorite teacher is my sixth grade teacher. I hope one day you she You only had this. one? Yeah, sixth grade was elementary school still for us. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. My my kindergarten was half day. <laughs> it's not fun. Mm, yeah, oh, yeah, it's so fun for the parents. Yeah, I drop think your kid my off, mom liked five it. Five minutes later, you have to go pick your kid up. <laughs> we we hung out. She that at that time, I think she was still because she took some time off of work when I was little, and I remember I was her little helper at the grocery store. I'd help her find things. You know, you set this up like you were going to be uh, sitting here with like a, an endless scroll of bad teachers, but it's like really four or five out of the, I mean, how many teachers have you had over well, the years? Like that's pretty, that's not a bad hit I'm ratio, holding, right? I'm, I have the the aforementioned letter I wrote to my sixth grade teacher pulled up my phone that I will read, okay. that I read to you that one time. Yep. And it's really funny. That's why I'm sharing. I definitely had, I mean, I forgot a lot of them and I definitely had plenty of shitty college professors. That's a whole different story, but I had, I had really good college professors pretty much across the board, I'm going to say. My I was not ready for primetime, mm. mind you. My first school, I, I mentioned I went to an art school, and I wanted to study graphic design. And the program, you basically couldn't do that until you were like a sophomore or junior. So I had to go through an entire year of like really intense fine arts training, which I'm just like... I don't like drawing. I'm not like I can draw, but it takes me a long time to refine. And I'm not just one of those people who can like whip out a portrait. And we had to do so much of this. And none of the teachers talked to me because I was bad. And they just assumed I wasn't trying, which I eventually I stopped trying. because I was like, I don't want to be here. You're not teaching me anything. And when we had a few, I was good at sculpture because that was like a in the high school. I took a lot of sculpture. So like when we had those projects, they'd be like, oh, 99 like you're trying and I'm like yeah because I'm good at this and you're actually speaking to me so that was a really that was a rough year because we had uh you were more like 66 at that time right? yeah 33 all the way through yeah. elementary school we had uh it was a four four hours of class hour, like straight for four hours of our class every morning oh, amazing for a year that would have been incredible it was if I enjoyed what I was doing I mean I had fun with my friends but yeah, there were some times that it was it was real brutal there. So, yeah, I mean, not all teachers are right. Not all teachers are right for the right person. But I did have plenty of good teachers. But yes, my sixth grade teacher. Mm -hmm. I don't think she could have been older than I am at this point. So late 20s, early 30s, maybe. Isn't that amazing? It's <laughs> sick. Okay, sidebar. My, my favorite teacher of all time, my English teacher in high school, who I had twice. What I did the math on how old he was. And he was like not much older than me either. And he was a grown up to me, you know, like I was 15 and he was like 
35 or whatever. Like he had, he had a daughter and he was married and I was like, oh, he's an adult man. And now I'm like, oh my God, like our coworkers are that mm-hmm. age. And I'm like, you're a child. Mm-hmm. Like our Scottish friend and him probably aren't that much different than mm-hmm. different in age. And he's got kids. Mm-hmm. I'm like, who let you? You're a child, you're a baby. I was so in love with my ninth grade biology teacher who went a on man. to teach which is my okay. kids, which is the coolest thing. Right. So is it <laughs> or is it weird? Amazing. So she she was young. She was you know, she was young when she she had just started her career uh, when I got into high school. And I, I mean, I was I was legitimately it was like such a big crush on this woman. She gave you the talk and uh, some. Yeah. I mean, she she covered some of that ground, which was just like I just felt like she was just talking to me. I must have been red faced for like literally half I'm sure of it. every 14 year old boy was. Oh, absolutely. But she was mine. I I really loved her. And um, one day she locked eyes with me in the middle of class and stopped what she was teaching. And she looked at me and she's like, you okay there, Max? And I was like, I was like, oh my God, she really sees me. And I was like, uh, and I, to this day, I do not know how I did not perceive what was going on. I looked at her, I was like, I'm great, Mrs. So-and-so. Thank you for asking. And she's like, okay, because you're, you're literally bleeding all over your shirt. And I was, I, I used to get a lot of nosebleeds because my allergies were so bad. And I had blood pouring out of my nose all over my shirt. Everybody turned around me. They're like, oh my God. It looked like I was fucking shot. And she took me into the back, you know, but it was in a science lab. So she took me in the back. She got some ice. She's like, lay down, put some ice on your neck. And I on your neck? Di- on, on my, my, uh, my head. And I can remember to this day, like, Like, you know, when you have the bloody nose and you're like, you have like blood now, it's in the back of your throat. And I was just like, thank you so much. I'm so sorry. I've got ice on my face. And I'm just looking at her. I was just so happy that she was that close to me. Adolescence is really fucked up, the things that you wind up remembering. But it still astonishes me to this day that I I was just, I was so locked in on her that I didn't even feel blood streaming down my face and just all over my shirt. Weird. That's bizarre. Yeah. I don't think I've ever been that infatuated with anything. No? I don't think so. I think you have. Why don't you show me your tattoo? No. That's a secret. Right now? Is it? Well, no one can see it. No one can see it. Oh, man, it looks good, 99. (laughs) Thank you. That's fucking tight. Thank you. I got a tattoo of my favorite band. But I think I would know if I had a nosebleed. This person who just said to me, I don't think I've ever been that infatuated with anything. Just show me the name of the band that she loves on her arm. And it's a great tattoo. I'm Thank a fan. You. But yeah, I, I think you know a little something about infatuation. There's a difference between mature love and infatuation. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've been infa- that infatuated. I'm... I'm um, too aware of myself at all times. I did not know that I was having a nosebleed. I'm constantly worried I'm having a nosebleed. I didn't if know If you they haven't existed. noticed, I can check out and uh, just go somewhere else sometimes. Yeah, so. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I do too. I'm just, <laughs> it's like one foot in, one foot out. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate. I wish I had that capability, but no, I can it's go called somewhere mental and just be like illness. Under a swimming pool. Okay, wait. Do you want to hear the, the letter? I do. Okay. Well, I've heard it. Well, yeah, but I'm sure you don't remember it. So my sixth grade teacher legitimately bullied me. And so I said, dear blank, you've been yelling at me all week. And I've been near tears like a zillion times. How old are you right now? 12. 12. Thank you. You've also been kind of picking on me. I would really like it to stop. <laughs> I mean, you say these comments to me and they're really hurtful. Plus, does the whole class really need to know? 
And you'll probably say, no, I'm not picking on you or yelling at you. But some people have said things to me like, Miss Blank has been yelling at you a lot. And I definitely agree. One of the times you yelled at me, I was crying. I just hit the tears. When you yell at me, it makes me feel like you don't even care about my feelings. Sometimes you yell at me if I ask you a question and you haven't answered it. I'm skipping over a part where I give an example where I, it's stupid. I was like, and I asked you if I could write in my book and you said, what do you think or something? But your answer for the other person didn't answer my question and it hurt my feelings. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I'm just telling you the truth about how I feel. Thank you for taking the time to read this letter and acknowledging how I feel. From 99. And I read that to my therapist after I found it because <laughs> I was like going through, you know, my mom saved every piece of school thing. And then like looking at them now, we're, we're all like, we don't need this. Like, I don't want to look at some of these things again. And so I, I read it to my therapist and she was like, the emotional intelligence for Seriously. a 12 year old. And this is what my fucking teacher said. Dear 99, thank you for sharing your feelings with me. I'm so sorry that you feel this way. Oh, classic. And never want to see you sad. I know that I've been a little harder on you because you were becoming a little chatty. Ooh. And I know that you're capable of so much more. She's fucking blaming wow, she, me. Yes, yeah, she is. Like, I will make sure not to upset you. That's a little gaslighting. It is. Mm -hmm. It really is. I'm sorry you're hurt, but oh, you're yeah. doing it. Oh, yeah. So I'll make sure not to upset you, but can you please do your share as well? I'm sorry for any hurt feelings, and I want you to know that you are a great girl and student. Love, Miss Blank. And she I'm ended like, well. Yeah. But I'm like, Miss, mm. <laughs> I'm 12. The fact that she didn't take any, she barely took any accountability. So on fuckers. That's 12-year-old 99, so that's 33. <laughs> now imagine 33, 66, the fully formed 99 with me. And let me ask you if you think I get away with any bullshit. Just don't. Nobody does. Well, you know what? Maybe if I wasn't uh, berated as a 12-year-old, I'd have I'd have thicker skin. But I, she tore me down. She did. I was a, I was a cryy little kid. So we're still working on that. How, yeah. how recently did you read that to your therapist? Uh, I or think was that like foundational? You're like, here's where my problem started. <laughs> no, <laughs> nice I, to meet you. I'd forgotten about I mean, I always knew I like I had poor memories with her. She just was never kind to me. And I think she thought I was out to get her. Mm. And I'm sure like, you know, there are things I don't remember. I'm sure it was a little, you know, I was, I was me then. Mm. I was I'm sure I was a smart ass. But like I'm still 12 at the end like at the end of all of it I'm 12 and you're an adult teacher or quote unquote adult I mean right. <laughs> but well, listen in the spirit of not letting anybody off the hook this is the <laughs> art part of education this is not the science part this is the art part this is where humans have to interact with one another and humans are weird humans are different and they all come with different perspectives and and shit like that and this was kind of heartbreaking to me. So I reconnected over the pandemic with a number of the kids that I graduated with. And we all had a, a big class Zoom and it was so great. And we all saw each other. And I spoke with a, a couple one-on-one -on -one after the fact and just to kind of, that we hadn't, we literally hadn't seen each other in 30 years, literally. One of the women I connected with was, I mean, one of the, one of the stars, I would call her like a star in high school, athlete, high academic honors, brilliant student, went on to go Ivy League, half black, half white. So I'm connecting with her and a lot of the stuff that was going on during the pandemic, the George Floyd, the uh, talking about, you know, what, what we were going to do in schools, what our kids were going through in schools. You know, we were remarking about how I hadn't seen her in 30 years um, and hadn't, you know, had she been back to the school because she had moved out of the state and she said, oh, no, I'll never step foot on that campus again. 
And it's, uh, it's fascinating to me how you can go through life so close to people for, and, and share so much time with them and be having totally different experiences and just be unaware of what that other person is, is thinking and feeling. And she gave me a few examples of some of the shit that she went through as a, as a black woman in the school. And then she said, for, and I, she goes, and what really did it for me was when I told a teacher that I really liked that I got into blank Ivy school. And he literally said to me, well, it, the on paper must have been the white part of you that got the grades. But good, good thing for you that the black part of you got you to the front of the line. The fuck? And she's like, back then, do they even have diversity quotients? Quotient? No. Is that a word? Yeah. Quotients, quotas, quotas. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm mixing up kind of like how direct it was, but it, it was. That was pretty was direct, that, right? It was, the, it was that sentiment. And she said, from that moment on, she's like, I, I was into college. I was like, okay, I'm going there. I'm leaving this place behind and I'm never fucking looking back. She goes, that came to identify my entire experience at the school. Point being, in a messy environment where you're putting people with people and humans, especially humans that aren't formed yet, teachers matter and what they say matters. The fact that we can all, I guarantee it, every unfucker listening to this right now, can dig into the archives, not that far, like probably pretty close to the surface, and think about those moments growing up that either built you or broke you, or both, because we all have them. Like, thank God I had that social studies teacher because he truly, and I've had a, an opportunity to, to express this to his face, to validate like his entire career to say, you did this. Like, I never thought I was this person that could speak up. I was the quietest person in school. I never engaged in debate. I never fucking read for pleasure. Like I didn't, I just didn't think I was that person until he just unlocked this door that I don't know would have ever unlocked. I truly don't. And then you have those teachers that like literally belittled you to the consciously or subconsciously or whatever it was, or just didn't notice you yeah. when you wanted them to. All this shit really <laughs> or matters. Or when you didn't, like when or they blood you blood streaming you're... out of your nose. Exactly. And the, the, the good teachers can have such the impact, but especially when you're under, I mean, all of schooling, but elementary school, middle school, you're, those are your real formative years. Those are when your brain's yeah. forming. And a traumatic experience, I mean, it can turn you off from education. It can turn you off from lots of things. Yep. You have one bad experience and also one, like one bad teacher can set you back. If you don't connect with their teaching style, absolutely, especially the way, at least where we live, our education, you know, the curriculum really does build in a lot of places. Like in math, if you miss a module, oh my God. you're fucked for the rest going, of the year. I'm literally going through that right now That's, and I cannot help my daughter. It's what happened with me. I, I understand conceptually like numbers, but I didn't. There was like one, like very early on in middle school, I just like either for lack of trying because I was, didn't care about school or just because it went over my head. I'm not sure at the time, you know, but and then the rest of my my math career, quote unquote, I a hated it because yep. I didn't understand it a lot of the time and not necessarily a specific person's fault or the curriculum. It's a whole confluence of things, but it's really, you know, you are putting I think about how I was a camp counselor and <laughs> these fucking parents gave us their children for eight weeks. Insane. And I was 15 or 16 taking care of 14 year olds. Like it was like a, a babysitting a little kid, like mm -hmm. a little sister. And 
Similarly, <laughs> you know, these people are quote unquote vetted, but it's like you're you're mm-hmm. sending you're sending your kids to a school. You just have no idea and not even from the, you know, the severely like violent that nature of it where they're like predators. I'm just talking right. about you don't know and you're just trusting. You send them, you know, what's the statistic of how many hours you spend at school and then work? They spend more hours there than at home. So yeah, I, it's it's a weird. The last thing we need to be doing is driving quality teachers from the profession, as we've done over the last decade, for fucking sure. Because yeah. we're guaranteeing a negative outcome right now. Like, of course, it's inevitable that th- the schools are going to be failing our kids right now if the best teachers are just like putting up the fuck this flag. Yeah, and I get it. I mean, that burnout. Oh, it's got to be so real and atrocious. so. You know, when I'm burnt out on my work, other than let's say this, if I'm burnt out from doing graphic design, let's say. Mm-hmm. The world's not going to end. Right. Nothing's going to happen. Right. A client nobody, might not get their dies. logo, whatever. It still sucks and it still feels that way. But this is a world of students. Like oh, yeah. what if what if you need to take a mental health leave in the middle of the year and then you're you have a leave replacement teacher who might not know it or you have a, like a long sub. It's just mm-hmm. it's a lot. It is a lot. It's an important piece of who we are certainly as a country and 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 listen we are still, and it depends which ranking you look at. I mean, there are so many different rankings. There is no one system that goes apples to apples in the world. Meaning, when I quote these statistics ranking us against the other OECD nations, I'm trying to stay away from the U.S. News World Report kind of stuff. I'm trying to go drill into more academic analyses of of how our students stand up versus others. And it's different. I could probably pull many, many different sources that belie the rankings that I that I even covered in this. And I did source one of the U.S. News and World Reports, by the way. There's so many different avenues that you can take. The fundamental difference that we need to be looking at is because you can't compare literacy rates because every uh, literacy rates are 99 plus percent in every OECD nation. 99. 99. So that's not really a factor. That gets into the proficiency question. And then how old are they going to be? What are we testing them? Obviously, they're going to be in different languages. You can't test history because we're all learning kind of different histories. We start with our own countries and the world, whatever it is, right? So it's very difficult to benchmark us against the rest of the world. So I tried to find some middle ground to look at that. Um, I was more curious about graduation rates, where funding started, how it uh, worked its way through the system and how equal funding was as it related to outcomes. And that's why there's some better sourcing in there if you want to go uh, for a deeper dive into it to look at it, because we do have the formulas wrong. And we know this. That's where that's where you can start from a similar place. And here's what's fascinating, again, about a guy like Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman started from the same place that we do. Funding by local district, by local taxing authority, is going to lead to unequal and imbalances in the system across the board. We agree on that. So you can start there, and then you go to the next logical conclusion. Ergo, we should probably try to even out the funding. That's what our side would say, and he would say, no, 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 just no, fuck funding. You have to look at this as a free market. So strip all of it away. We say strip all of it away and pr- and replace it with more of a centralized and egalitarian approach so that we're all benefiting from it. And he's like, no, 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 no. Competition will cure all. Take all the funding away and then just give the money out directly to schools 
make them for profit. And that's the way that, because ultimately that's where he wanted to get to. Like a public school system that is not, you know, uh, competitive and for profit doesn't make any sense in his world. So all of these things, we start out at the same places. And as an ideologue, he took it in this other direction. And then it was perverted by the people that wanted to turn this into a religious experiment. But we have to have better conversations about it. It's just it's just insane to me. And every other fucking country has bananas formulas. It's it's bananas. Bananas. Every other country has a better formula for funding to provide more egalitarian outcomes. That would also cure a lot. If you think about getting rid of the portion of taxes locally that go towards school districts, what that would do to the housing market, what that would do for people that pay an enormous amount, like the, the coastal states that pay an enormous amount in those kind of school taxes, but we go all the way up to the highest level of funding possible and still fund the districts to the same degree that we're doing because we have a universal tax that's shared throughout. Oh my God. So if it was like we proposed before, you, you've got that 6% or whatever it is for social security, take the cap off of that, go all the way to the top, add another 2% on it, and that's just going to be the education tax. But what will go away is the abusive property taxes. The other fucking thing that that does is it makes us more competitive with places like Florida, for example, because a lot of people are moving to Florida because they think, or Texas, because they think, oh, there's going to be no taxes down there. Well, guess what? They collect taxes anyway. They just take it in a whole different fucking way. It just doesn't show up in your property tax bill, but you get what you pay for. And the result, the proof is in the pudding because their schools are failing and underperforming. And it produces stupid people that vote the wrong way in elections. Ah. Anywho, <laughs> this was a very, very rich, wonderful experience for me. I know it was a long series on fuckers. How much in our lane is this? I feel like it's ever so crucial to everything that we talk about. To me, education is a socioeconomic issue. Because everything we, is. <laughs> yeah. I can turn it into one, but this one really is because it requires funding. I mean, that was the original problem that Jefferson was presented with. That's the economic part and funding to build a society. And that's the social part. This is the foundational socioeconomic issue. So I thought it warranted the attention that we gave it. There's so much that I missed. There's so much more to this fucking story. It's incredible. But hopefully it gives us a really good jumping off point and a good framework to have some shared language around education so that we can cut through the bullshit when we hear it and not be swayed by things that sound really great like choice, freedom, and liberty. It all sounds good, but it can't be applied in every situation. So thank you for coming along the journey. I hope you made it this far and um, we'll be back with some other shit to kind of change it up. It's going to be fun. And as always... Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro Manny Faces. It is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. That's you. Mm -hmm. I'm your host, Max. That's all I am. Tom McGovern writes all the original music, including that little special, You're Simply the Worst, that we put in there. We got in uh, into this episode. He is a genius. Go to TomMcGovern.com. We love him very much. And all the rest of the things to help support this show, to help take us from the top 5% of all shows. On Spotify specifically. To the top 1%. We're in the top two worldwide. Don't get us wrong. I think we are, right? People We've just don't listen on before. Spotify that much. That's so. right. Yeah. 
So maybe we're in the top 2%, but we got to crack the top 1%, and then we got to get to the tippy-tippy-tippy top of it, and then we'll change the world. Will you, will you all do me a favor? This will heal my trauma from sixth grade. Please leave a rating and review. Yeah. A good one. Yeah. Please? 99's asking nicely. Please, please, don't make me cry. Please leave a rating and review. if you make her cry, she'll send you a terrible, terrible, but well-reasoned letter from a very emotional place. I thought you were saying <laughs> I do that to you, and I'm like, that's not true. No, to your teacher. I don't send you letters. No. I no. just look you at just you. You walk over, you're like, hey, fucker. That's not This how is I... how this is going to go. No, that's how it ends. That's how it ends up. <laughs> Listen to me now. I don't have time for your bullshit. I emotionally that's what she says manipulate to me. you first. She comes over. She starts crying. She's like, "Hey, can I talk to you? I don't have time for your bullshit, motherfucker. Get in line." And I'm like, "Stop talking to me that way." She's like, "Suck it up, you little fucking baby." It's usually the other She's way so around. So mean. So mean. No, it's usually I'm just sitting there minding my business. Max comes over and he's like, "Fuck you," <laughs> and I just start crying, <laughs> and that's the end of it. Uh, We'll catch you for whatever's next on Fuckers. Love y'all.